Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zagacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world, globally or locally. UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. Another episode of the Behind You podcast as we kind of get into uh, all the stories of all facets of University of Miami Athletics, not only the coaches and the players, but they're, the great thing about college athletics, there are a lot of other sort of tentacles that attach themselves to the, to the sports and the administrators, the school, the, the band, the logo, uh, the games. And John Ruth is joining us. And today he serves as the executive director of the UM Sports Hall of Fame, which we will talk about at the very end. I've, I've been privileged to be at some of their events. They're great, but uh, John sort of made his name in, in other ways. Mostly good. John, thanks for doing this. Josh, thanks. Well, fortunately for me, the statute of limitations is up on most of the uh, things we did back in the 80s. Good. That, mean, that means you will tell more because I've read some of the articles and they're, I want, I'm going to see if I can peel back a little bit more out of you since there's no... Uh, no, no jailhouse time that has that can be served. There's no double jeopardy, right? We can peel back the fur a little bit. Yes, that's what I that's what I want to do. You know, I almost feel like as as a mascot that that veil gives you bravado, and maybe the ultimate stage for that was 1989 in Tallahassee. A story you've told before, but we've got to tell it again. And I will just I will lead you down this path by saying, you were never arrested. Just detained. So no criminal record for Sebastian the Ibis that we know of. <laughs> well, kind of. Uh, <laughs> Is there? Oh, let's go. Let's go. Everyone knows the incident. I'll, I'll, I'll briefly describe it. Uh, 1989, Miami was going up to play Florida State in Tallahassee. Sitting around uh, earlier in the week with some friends, having a few adult beverages. And somebody said, you know, well, what are you going to do? You know, how are you going to get the Seminoles? And, you know, it was brought up about Chief Osceola and his spear and, I happened to have a fire extinguisher uh, at my house, and I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll put the fire out. So quick transition to a day or two later, my friend, one of them who was there, uh, was a police officer for the city of Coral Gables, got a Coral Gables fireman's hat, the jacket. We had the fire extinguisher. And prior to the game, I walk out there, and I'm filling up the fire extinguisher. Nobody said anything to me. Going back into the locker room, you know, we're on the Miami sideline. And uh, so as the game is uh, coming 7.30, TV time, standing in the tunnel with the, the helmet, the jacket, the fire extinguisher. Coach Erickson and the team come around the corner, and I hear, you know, they always had the little guy from TV standing there, and he's like, Coach, five seconds. Coach, go. So I take the first step out, get slung around, and this young face is yelling and screaming at me, give me the fire extinguisher. And uh, I yelled, no. Of course, nobody could hear me. I'm in a costume, and the band of the hours playing. The crowd's going crazy. And as I turned to get away from him, I squeezed the handle and splashed water all over the chest of a Leon County Sheriff's deputy. Uh, needless to say, it took two seconds where five of them had me slammed up against the fence. And uh, fortunately, the Miami Herald photographer was standing there and he literally said he turned and took one picture and then that was it. But that's the famous photo that everybody has seen. 
they held, held me up against the fence, one wing to one side, one wing behind my back. And uh, one guy was jerking the, the bill, the beak, and trying to pull off the uh, head. And, and it wasn't until our cheerleader advisor came over and said, you know, officers, what are you doing to our bird? The things kind of calmed down. And uh, so um, I was able to finish the game. Unfortunately, we lost that game. Uh, but many, many years later, when I first got on the internet, I actually went to the Leon County Sheriff's website and printed out a form that you could file an arrest complaint. And so I actually typed out Sebastian the Ibis, uh, AKA the bird, uh, <laughs> and filled this thing in and sent it back to them. And it actually made it onto their website that I don't know if it's still there, but there was, a, I actually, as a joke, I did a, actually filed a police report against Sebastian the Ivory. Did you get a response? I, I never did get a response, but uh, it may still be out there somewhere on the internet. If, if anybody uh, can find it, go to the Leon County Sheriff's website. Wow. Now let me ask you this. Up until that point, was that the most daring thing you had done? I mean, we did a lot of crazy things. That, that was one thing that, um, you know, people ask me, you know, why doesn't the bird do this or, or that? There were no rules back then. I mean, we, I, I really just try to started things. And, and a lot of it was just the sick mentality that I had, um, you know, because you can get away with anything when you're accustomed. You know, that's, that's the Ibis doing that. That's not John. That, you know, that's what people would say. But uh, like, uh, you know, Dave Heffernan uh, loves to talk about the time in my first year, 1984, doing the IBIS. We went up to Louisville and, you know, they weren't that good at the time and it was a small crowd. And so we were beating them, you know, 34 to seven and a half or whatever. So at halftime, I went and got a newspaper and went and just climbed up to the top of the, the stands and sat up there reading a newspaper. And during, you know, in, in costume, there's, there's Sebastian up in the stands reading a newspaper and the football team, I found out later, they were all on the sidelines just roaring with laughter. And it was, you know, some of those little things like that that 35, 40 years later people talk about. You know, there was, there was certainly, uh, you know, the football team did the, the fatigues out in, in, uh, in Tempe for the Fiesta Bowl. However, what people don't know is I asked Sebastian wore fatigues earlier that year prior to the Oklahoma game. And not that Sebastian is claiming credit. For what reason did you wear the fatigues for that game? Well, because that was the big one versus two uh, game. And um, Oklahoma had been talking all week long about it was going to be a war. We're going down to Miami and it's going to be a war. And so Sebastian thought, okay, if it's a war, he's going to wear fatigues. And as they came out, so I've got a wonderful photo here in the Hall of Fame of Sebastian. I was holding his water gun, squirting, you know, towards the, Oklahoma football team as they came out. So, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of that kind of thing. There was really no rules. And so I, I was able to get away with a lot of stuff. You know, one of the things we did for the Penn State game, uh, I believe that was 91, no, 92, 91 or 92, uh, 91, because we played up there in 92. The 91 year, I actually had a friend who worked for Miami-Dade in the helicopter, um, you know, the air rescue uh, group. And so we planned this skit to where couple of cheerleaders dressed up as Penn State fans would come out at halftime. You know, Sebastian was out there to do the CANES, and they would come running out as Penn State fans beating up Sebastian. Of course, I mean, we had these rubber mallets that were six feet tall, you know, the blow up things, you know. So it was obvious this was a skit. Uh, although one fan actually came running out of the, end, the West End Zone thinking it was real. But uh, so they tie up Sebastian, and then suddenly this helicopter comes flying in from the open end zone, literally below the, the big 
uh, light poles that were on top of the stadium. I mean, imagine 80,000 people. Imagine if something happened to that helicopter and it crashed. Nobody from Metro Dade bothered to let the FAA know about it. And so we got a call from the federal government, the Federal Aviation Administration, saying, what are you guys doing with a helicopter in a full stadium? So we just said, well, okay, we'll never do it again. <laughs> but, but, you know, so we did crazy things that we just, we did them first and then we apologized later if we had to. Did you get or ask for permission from anyone in UMF? Like, for the, were you kind of like the Lone Ranger or did you have to float it up the flagpole for any of these things? Well, for that helicopter thing, yeah, we had to, had to get permission because obviously the stadium would need to know and all that. And, and that, that was what was amazing that, that the, nobody thought well, we need to contact the, the airports two miles away. Maybe we should let them know we got a helicopter. Um, but yeah, m most of the things I, I kind of did on my own. If it was something that, that I thought I should get permission, usually if, if, if you thought you had to get permission, you probably shouldn't be doing it. And uh, so, but, but there was, you know, there was always someone in the athletic department I would have to, uh, you know, run a few things by. And 98% of the time they said, yeah, look, you know, that sounds fine, do it. So you mentioned Dave Heffernan. I know in reading articles, Lamar Thomas has commented, Gino Toretta. So at that time, when you were doing those things, were you getting any feedback from the team in real, not in real time, like during the game, but I mean, like, you know, after the game, during the week, or was all this stuff kind of after the fact, like you'd run into them at Hall of Fame dinners or events, and they'd, they'd start regaling you about the stuff you did? Well, no, I actually dressed in the locker room uh, with the team. Uh, that's a great story, too. My very first game was Jimmy Johnson's very first game, the kickoff classic up in uh, the Meadowlands in, in New Jersey. And so you know, I'd never worked a football game in Miami before, so I didn't know where I was going to dress and uh, new equipment guys. And they said, yeah, just bring a costume. We'll throw you in a corner somewhere and, you know, you can dress and get out of there before the team comes in and, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I was running a little bit late, and so I'm dressing, and the team comes in. It's like, all right. <laughs> so it's Coach Johnson's first game, and he's walking around slapping guys on the helmets and shoulder pad. You know, hey, get fired up. And, and suddenly he comes to me, and I'm sitting there in fur and tights and a, a bandana on my head, and he goes, who are you? And I just stood up and said, hey, Coach, I'm John Ruth. I'm your mascot. And he goes, the, the mascot changes in the locker room? Quick thinking, I said, it's a tradition at Miami. Well, that tradition started that very moment. <laughs> and so for the next nine years, I actually dressed in the locker room of the Orange Bowl and in the locker room on, on the road trips. So I got to know the guys, some of them a little more personal than I wanted to. But, you know, it was, it was getting to know the guys prior to the game. And so it got to the point after a year or two where I was part just part of the team. And, you know, I would lead the team out uh, of the tunnel. And so the guys, you know, guys were coming up, pounding me in the chest and hitting me on the head, just like they were, you know, their teammates. I, I got a lot of feedback a lot of times. what they like? Uh, they like things that just, you know, were, were out of the ordinary. And, and, and there were a few times, you know, where I might have gotten into the stands with some of the co-eds and, you know, a couple of them, hey, that was my girlfriend. Or, hey, can you get me a phone number of that one? I mean, you know, it really was, you know, there were there was some of the guys really kind of kept an eye on 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 what Sebastian was doing during the games. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it was, it's neat that, you know, still 30 years later, you know, guys, I, Lamar Thomas still calls me the bird every time he sees me. You know, as a matter of fact, he, he was the one, the Notre Dame, uh, the uh, Nebraska game where we weren't supposed to do the smoke. That was the Orange Bowl game. And of course, I took it upon myself that. It's the, the mascot's job to uphold traditions, even if they were ones they created right on the spot. 
<laughs> but um, so we were told by the by the the Orange Bowl that we weren't going to be able to do the smoke because the big 12 or 8 or 10 or whatever number they were at the time, uh, they were officially the home team. So we weren't supposed to do it. So again, had a fire extinguisher at the house, you know, snuck it into the stadium. I had these these huge baseball bags that carried, you know, baseball bats. And so I had the fire extinguisher in there. And so as the team is getting ready to come out for the, the final time right before the game, uh, I kind of just snuck the bag out there and, and walked along next to Coach Erickson and the players. And I'll never forget one, you know, one of the Orange Bowl uh, representatives who was in charge of, of our area, getting us out on the field in time, was standing there, you know, on the walkie-talkie. And, and uh, he just, I saw him look at me and look at the bag and just go, oh, no. And he literally turned around and walked off. He didn't want to be part of it. The TV guy says, go. I pull the fire extinguisher out. Boom. I start, you know, squirting it. And, of course, there's a great uh, the video, the actual game. Uh, John Dockery is talking about how Miami is not going to be able to do the what, what? Oh, they did it anyway. You know? And so as I'm sitting there squirting this, I only had one fire extinguisher. You know, now when we come out to the smoke, there's 10, 12, 15 of them. I had one that I had to, it had to hold out through the whole team. And cause usually a lot of the starters were the last ones to come through. So I knew I had to, to get it out there and sure enough, Lamar, I'll never forget. I mean, he was one of the last guys out of the locker room. And I just heard him yelling, the bird, the bird, as he went running by and I'm squirting the, you know, the last little bit of the smoke out of the fire extinguisher. So, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to uh, have a, a great relationship with the players and, and um, you know, there were, there were some, some things that, uh, you know, like I, I've got fo- some, a lot of photos from our media days where, you know, a lot of times that the mascot's not even at a, at the bowl games media day, but, you know, I'd go out there and we'd throw passes to each other and, They'd throw me on their shoulder, you know, just crazy things that, that the guys kind of looked at uh, Sebastian as, as just another teammate. You mentioned the Nebraska game, and then we obviously we talked about what happened up in Tallahassee. So other than Tallahassee, I presume Tallahassee is the one you get asked about the most. Is, what, what would you get asked about next most? What do people want to know about from your time as Sebastian to Ibis? Well, I mean, a lot of the things I did were, were again, like I said, kind of – small things that people remember like the the louisville thing in the in the stands one of the things the great uh, sonny hirsch god rest his soul sonny to his dying day said it was the funniest thing he had ever seen in his life we go to play colorado in 1990 and of course they've got uh, you know the big colorado buffalo that comes out um ralphie and so you know they've got six guys that kind of hold the reins for him and so i thought okay well let's do something similar to that so i had four cheerleaders with little ropes around Sebastian's waist. And so right prior, just before the team's coming out, Sebastian goes bolting, you know, hold, they're holding him back, holding him back, holding him back, and, all, and then boom, goes, goes charging out. And Sonny Hurst said he was on the air saying, and now here are the, you know, the, the starting lineups for the Miami. And he just starts laughing as he sees Sebastian being, actually pulling one of the cheerleaders who fell and, and he, he said he literally had to take a quick little break and chuckle himself uh, enough so that he could then continue doing uh, the lineup. So there were a lot, a lot of those little moments <laughs> where it was just something kind of crazy that we thought of. And a lot of people, you know, still remember those because there was a lot of times in the, in the Orange Bowl where the Grim Reaper was a, a skit that I did uh, for the Houston game uh, in 1991. 
when they came in and, um, you know, it was late in the game and we were just crushing them. And so, you know, I came out with the, it just in all black with the, the uh, you know, the Grim Reaper outfit, you know, so things like that, that people remember, but yeah, definitely the, the Tallahassee incident because it got the most coverage obviously. And, um, and, and then that, that Penn State uh, helicopter uh, routine was probably one of the craziest things we did. Week to week, was there pressure? Did you feel pressure to create? Yes and no. I mean, certainly as a, as a performer, I, I looked at myself as a performer, um, you know, not just as a, as a cheerleader. Certainly I was there to help the crowd, you know, get into the game, but the cheerleaders were doing that. You know, it was easy for Sebastian to just get out there and get the crowd yelling and screaming. I really looked at it as, as a performer and I wanted to do one or two things that would get a laugh or just, you know, spur the team on, you know, spur the fans on to be louder and, and get more in, into the game. I was more so certainly a, a, a performer at, at the baseball games as the maniac because, you know, there were so many more breaks and, you know, you could do more things uh, during, during a baseball game than, you know, football, you only had a certain amount of time and, you know, and so you, you, I was a little more of a cheerleader there uh, in helping to get the crowd into the game. I mean, I, I remember some of those times being in the, the closed end zone and the visiting team, you know, Florida State or whoever was driving, they were at the 10 yard line and just, you know, getting, standing there, getting the crowd, you know, riled up and literally could feel the ground shake, you know, cause everybody's stomping their feet in the West end zone. And I mean, it was just, you know, occasionally you'd look up and the goalpost would be just kind of, you know, moving slightly because the ground was just shaking. I mean, some of those games were, were just amazing. So I, I was a part of that as, as a cheerleader uh, and as, as, as a performer of, of, you know, trying to do things that just that kept the, 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 the crowd, you know, into the game. I would imagine there is great thrill, right? To have that kind of power to control a crowd like that and to feel their energy. The first time I really did the cane spell out in front of the whole crowd was the Notre Dame game in 1989. I'd done, I actually started the, the, the CANES cheer at baseball games. And, you know, slowly the maniac worked it up to where he was getting the whole crowd doing it. Um, and so I started at football, I'm guessing probably 85 or 86. But so it really wasn't until 89. And at football games, I'd do it in front of the student section. Or I'd go to the West End Zone. Never had done the whole stadium. So it was the Notre Dame game, you know, one versus two again, one of those classic, you know, game of the centuries that we had four of in the 80s. <laughs> but uh, Notre Dame didn't bring their band down. So when the band of the hour finished at halftime, I knew there was two, three, four minutes. You know, the punters might come out first. But I knew that before the team came out, I had a couple of minutes. So I went out to midfield and started the, oh, you know, and, and I could tell, okay, the students are doing it now. The middle section's doing it. And now the West End Zone's doing it. And now the, the North Side's doing it. And I did, my, my whole family had come down because it, it was Thanksgiving weekend. My, my parents and my, my siblings had come down from South Carolina. My dad had a, one of those big old video cameras on his shoulder. And I've seen the video because it's really cool. He's, you hear the, uh, and I mean, the place just going nuts. And you see Sebastian kind of give it one of these, yes. You know, like I knew we had something. And I mean, that was really the first time the whole crowd had done it at once. And so again, that was one of those new traditions that, okay, I knew this was something that Sebastian was gonna have to do forever. And it was, I mean, it really was, was cool just to, you know, a lot of the times, uh, you know, just even a, a song, um, you know, one of the Queen songs, you know, we will rock you or something. And you're out there 
doing the, you know, getting the crowd to, to clap along with you or, or doing a dance routine, da, na, 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 hey, and just you throw your arms up and the whole place goes crazy. It, it really was a fun experience. There were, there were a few things that, that might not have worked, but mostly because the team was winning, the crowd was into it. There was so much enthusiasm and excitement that, uh, I mean, it was just an, an amazing time to, to be a mascot, to be a performer. Anything ever get nixed? Oh, gosh. I'm sure there was a couple of things. It's been so many years. But rarely, uh, as I say, the athletic department was was very supportive. Uh, Sam Jankovich really did love the IBIS, and he, you know, he was the athletic director during most of my tenure, and uh, he he would would kind of just say, yeah, let's go out there and have fun. I, I learned from Coach Frazier, you know, the he, he's the one who brought me down first and, and as the maniac, and Coach Frazier always said, give them good, clean, G-rated family entertainment, and so. With football, you could go a little bit to the edge and then maybe a step or two over, you know. Baseball, we kept it as clean as, as possible. But, you know, and that was, that was part of it, too, was that with the, the image of, of the university and the, and the football team, and most of the country may have taken it as a negative, but we took swagger as a positive, obviously. And we, so we were happy that we, you know, pissed off a lot of people. Um, you know, we could care less if we went into Virginia Tech or you know, go to Colorado or Oklahoma and, and beat them, you know, and laugh in their faces. And th those were kind of the things that that was what we did. And we knew we were going to win. We didn't just think we were going to win. We knew we were going to win. And so it was a lot easier to be real bravado. And, and so that was kind of also, like I said, the, the, the image of Sebastian was, was he was just as strong, as intense, as swagger filled as the football team. You know, the maniac's a little lovable loser kind of character and, you know, just having fun and, you know, but the, but the Ibis was, and, and the costume itself, the one that I wore, it's a little bit different now, but I had this, what I called uh, like an, an, an inner tube. It was a, a chest protector kind of thing. So it kind of pumped the chest up. And so when I put the jersey on over that thing, I felt, you know, like a football player, you know, you, you kind of felt like you were in a uniform and, and okay, it's time to go out. And so there was a different mentality to performing as Sebastian. You know, you, you couldn't let the other team get anything over on you. And, you know, their fans occasionally at Iowa, we had a problem at Syracuse one year, fan came out on the field. Of course, the, the Iowa situation was uh, Tom Arnold, uh, the comedian, uh, actually had, had bet a guy that he wouldn't go out and beat up Miami's bird. And this thing, you know, this guy comes, knocks into me, and they ended up arresting him. And Tom Arnold was was on the Arsenio Hall show the following week and admitted that, yeah, he paid a guy to go beat up the mascot. So we get, we got a little national publicity out of it uh, that, you know, well, you know, you can you can attempt to beat up the, the bird, but it ain't going to work. You know, he's too tough. And uh, so we kind of had fun with that as well. But uh, but and there were a few other places where, you know, the, the, the cheerleaders had to protect Sebastian. Because uh, fans would come out of the stands at him, and uh, I guess they figured they couldn't beat up the football team. Let's beat up their mascot. Anything at the '91 was it the '91 Cotton Bowl against Texas? I mean, there there was enough there to go around. You participate in any shenanigans? That morning started out wonderful. I've never told this story, but I'll tell it to you. Myself, the Ibis, and the cheerleaders were in the uh, Cotton Bowl parade that morning, and it was cold morning. We we had to be up at seven o'clock or something because I think it was like a one o'clock game. And it was a cold day uh, for Dallas. So standing around, getting ready to go out on the, in this parade, somebody says, hey, 
hey, Sebastian, that's the governor of Texas over there. So I go over, Governor Ann Richards. Can you cuss on these podcasts? Go for it. It wasn't that bad. But I didn't cuss. She did. I walk up to shake her hand. and I've got the photo. It was in the Dallas Morning Paper the next day of Sebastian shaking the hand of Texas Governor Ann Richards. And she lean, she is leaning forward going, we're going to kick your effing ass. <laughs> like, whoa, <laughs> nice to meet you, Mrs. Governor. So, so the game starts. And, of course, you know, all the stuff that, that happened pregame with the teams lining up and yelling and screaming at each other. So the fans there were, were already pretty riled up. And I had uh, gone to Shorty's Barbecue over here and had borrowed a branding iron. And I had uh, worked it out so that I, I had painted a U on the end of the branding iron. I put, you know, stuff over the thing to, to make this branding iron look like I'm going to brand Bevo. And so I snuck over to Bennett, you know, got a cowboy outfit on and, and I sneak over and Bevo's this, 1200 1300 pound steer with horns that go about 12 feet on either side of him i mean this monster snots coming out of his nose he's drooling he's just disgusting looking and he's got four guys holding him similar to the colorado buffalo but these guys are just kind of holding him and so they realize i'm there to play and i'm not you know it's not, not a real branding iron but i'm gonna have a little fun but at one point they turned bevo towards me and his eyes locked Sebastian's eyes and I could tell he was, was getting hungry and getting pissed. And he kind of took a a jump at me. And so what I did was I played it off. I performed, I went, you know, hid behind the goalpost and, you know, acted like I was scared. And that might've been the only time where, you know, you let the opposing, you know, mascot get something over on you was when he's a 1200 pound steer and he's coming after you with horns. But, um, you know, that, that whole Cotton Bowl was, it was a fun time. And, of course, as, you know, the stands were empty by the end of the third quarter. And, I mean, we were just celebrating with ourselves. Uh, the Texas fans had gone home. Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zagacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world. Globally or locally, UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. You mentioned a a few minutes ago that Ron Frazier is the one that brought you down. So let's just get into your fondness for being, I don't know, fondness, but desire to be a mascot, getting into the business. You mentioned before your family's from South Carolina to go to University of South Carolina. So why does John Ruth try out to be the mascot when he's a student at South Carolina? It sounded like something fun to do. I was a, a member of a fraternity and three of my fraternity brothers were cheerleaders. I guess I was one of those that was a little off. I had a warped sense of humor. And, you know, like we would have a, a fraternity sorority mixer, you know, cowboys and Indians. And, you know, in the old days, you know, you certainly can't do that now, but, you know, you dress up as either a cowboy or an Indian and come to a party and, and drink beer was really the premise of it. It was just wearing something different. And so we would have a Cowboys and Indians mixer and I would come as a Cleveland baseball player and people wouldn't understand that. And I'd go, yeah, Cleveland, Indian. Okay. You know, but so, I mean, that was kind of my mentality. It was a little, little different. And so uh, my fraternity brothers talked me and, and one other fraternity brother into trying out 
And so I, I, you know, if nothing else, I thought it'd be kind of cool. Growing up in Columbia, South Carolina, I was a big, you know, South Carolina fan growing up. I had dreamed of getting on the field as either a tight end or a third baseman or, and instead I was, you know, wearing fur and tights, you know, uh, but, but it was, it was a lot of fun to do that at South Carolina, but I, I didn't expect to go on past, you know, the two years I did it in school. But fortunately for me, the South Carolina baseball team hosted a regional uh, and the director of the NCAA championships, who would you know, be the director out in Omaha, uh, was at our regional. And so he saw how I performed the stands. And so he convinced the South Carolina coach, June Rains, to bring me out to Omaha. And I hate to admit this, 40 years ago, 1981 long time ago but so I was able to South Carolina won a few games and I was able to actually meet uh, coach Frazier uh at the time and and this this was 81 so then in 82 South Carolina or Miami actually came up to to Columbia to play South Carolina and so coach Frazier actually got to see me perform in front of the home crowd and how I worked the home crowd and and did skits you know did I did a lot more there obviously than I did in Omaha so they actually flew me down in May of 1982 for a weekend uh, to work the Florida State Series as the Maniac. The whole weekend in Columbia, Coach Frazier had tasked Rick Remmer, who's the director of alumni programs here at the university. Rick's job, Rick was the marketing uh, guy for the baseball team at the time. and His job was to, uh, to get me to commit to come to Miami. Of course, I spent the whole weekend hanging out with the, the sugar canes and uh, avoiding Rick with a passion. Uh, until the Sunday game, there was a, uh, a rain delay and the only chair left that I went to sit in the press box and there's Rick and he's like, I gotcha, let's talk. So uh, worked it out. I came down for the, basically as an audition in May of 82, I did three games as the maniac and um, I, I had a job working. I was going to work for a charity and do mm -hmm. fundraising and, and I thought, you know, I look, this might be kind of fun. So I, I actually created a character that summer and traveled the did some minor league games before I came to Miami in 83. And the, the plan was I was going to come down here and, you know, work baseball for a year or two and then hopefully get picked up by a, either a minor league team or maybe even a major league team and, and be their mascot. But I came down. I enjoyed it so much. I had a great time. And we were working the deal to start doing football. And, and I thought, you know, this could be something that I could make a career out of. And fortunately, Coach Frazier was very instrumental in, in my career because he, he also contacted a lot of the minor league clubs that allowed me to supplement my income. I wasn't making a lot as the Miami Maniac or Sebastian Ives, but I was able to make more money during the summers doing minor league games. And Coach Frazier worked it out for me to go to Holland in 1986 for the World Baseball Championships. That led to more tournaments in, in Europe and the Caribbean. And the university also, one of the things that, that happened was was the cheerleading squad was invited to go to the Japan Bowl in Tokyo, Japan in night after the, the Fiesta Bowl. So it would have been January of 87. And um, the girl who was working for the, the university at the time said, well, wait a minute, if you're taking cheerleaders, why don't you take our mascot too? That led to me going to Japan seven years in a row uh, and, and making other contacts that helped make, you know, other appearances. So um, I was very fortunate that you know, not only did I just work uh, Miami baseball games, but I was able to travel the world as a, a mascot. I performed in 49 of 50 states. I'll let you think about that for a minute. Um, but, uh, and I think, I think I, the last count was 22 countries. For somebody who just started out doing this for fun, it, it really turned into a, 
you know, a, a great career. Ron Frazier had a mind for this. He saw you, he wanted, you know, we always like the wizard marketing, making baseball fun at Mark light. So what did he, either him or Rick Remmert, I guess Rick Remmert was his front man, but what did Rick present to you? What was their vision? What was their pitch? And if you had a chance to talk to coach Frazier in that initial stages, what did he say? What did he want? What was his desire? Well, he, like I say, they were always looking for good G rated family entertainment. You know, he, he made that little ballpark at, at the corner of Ponce and Santa Mara, you know, just the place to be. It, we, we've talked about it many times, you know, with Jay Rokeach, the PA announcer. Jay and I had a great kind of, you know, he'd throw things at me and I'd, you know, react. And it was it was a comedy act. I guess you could say kind of like, um, uh, was it Abbott and Costello where one of them didn't talk, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, Jay Jay was was really good at that. Um you know, the, the promotions where we were giving away cars and trips to nowhere. I mean, there was just so much amazing uh, energy in the ballpark and obviously great baseball teams. And, and, you know, as Coach Frazier said many times, you know, we can give away as many cars as we want, but if the team's not winning, people aren't going to show. So it was a combination of winning and just the fun aspects of it. The Maniac was just doing crazy things that there were no rules. So literally the maniac was standing on the field during play as pitches were happening and reacting to if a third baseman dropped, you know, if the other opposing team dropped the ball, the maniac would react to it and, you know, doing dance routines, you know, and little skits with um, certainly when the Gators came to town, there was always a, an inflatable Gator that was beat up or actually the Florida state uh, Mark, Mike Martin, as much as our fans despised him as the Florida state baseball coach, he was one of the better ones to allow when, they, when their team came down here, he'd say, yeah, guys do whatever. And so I'd do these skits using the Florida state players kind of as the foil, you know, there was always something involved in with a water gun and somebody, you know, getting squirted and shot down. And, uh, or, you know, we, we did a couple of times where I, I had a, a pony, uh, that someone loaned me. And so the maniac came in as chief Osceola, but then breaks the spear and puts it out with water and, you know, we do it. So we just did some a lot of crazy things. And and that was coach's idea was just you never knew what you were going to see at the ballpark. You know, I, I remember many times I'd come walking in the dugout to change after doing a routine. And Coach Frazier would just shake his head and you know, <laughs> jokingly say, it's the drugs. It's got to be the drugs, you know, <laughs> just kind of crazy <laughs> stuff like that. And it wasn't. I promise there were no drugs involved. But, uh, you know, there were just crazy things that we got away with doing. Uh, and there were, there were no limits to it. How much more work was going into being the maniac, trying to entertain through the course of a game and then really the course of a weekend? Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, particularly, I mean, because back in the, in the mid 80s, we had 55 to 65 home games. You know, football, you had uh, five or six games. And a lot, a lot of the football routines were geared around who the team was. Baseball somewhat, but also baseball was more um, I'd go to uh, Specs Records and Tapes, which hadn't been in existence in 20 years, and I'd go through the the records, and a song would pop into my head, and I'd think, oh, that'd be that'd be a great one for a routine. You know, J. Rokeach, like I said, was a PA announcer, and he, and he did, uh, you know, all the music back in those days. He would suggest a song, and, you know, maybe you can do a routine to this. So during the week, I would be going to not only the record stores and finding music, but I would go to thrift stores and look for props. The great photo of, of Sebastian the Ibis with the king's robe and his four fingers with the rings, that king's robe I found at a Goodwill store, you know, so you could find things that, that could be used as props 
but yeah, so it, it was it was just kind of coming up with ideas. I'll never forget the the one thing for sure that did not work was um, back when break dancing was popular. Couldn't pull it off. Yeah, you know it, it, the kids were doing break dancing everywhere. Of course, I, I was not really a great dancer, but I was good enough that I could do things, and people thought, "Oh, look, the maniac you know knows what he's doing." And I really was just giving them you know three seconds worth of dancing instead of a whole minute. But so break dancing comes out, and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cute to have brick dancing? And so I got two bricks and put them on ropes, and Jay makes this huge announcement that, ladies and gentlemen, you know, the kids are going crazy over, you know, break dancing, but here the maniac wants to do his brick dancing. And so I'm doing these two little bricks like they're puppets, you know, on a string not a sound in the stadium i mean the crowd is just staring at me like what is this moron doing sure enough i go up into the press box afterwards to talk to jay and sam jankovich the athletic director is sitting there and he just looks at me and goes you're not doing that routine again are you <laughs> oh, no sir <laughs> one and done you know so sometimes things worked in my head but didn't work on the field that's a pretty good record if that's you know only one that you could think of that's something I mean, think about it you 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 are there to get a, a reaction out of a crowd right i mean that's that's the whole point is to get them to laugh or to smile or uh you know yeah oh my god or what's he doing or he's crazy or he is on drugs or maybe he is on drugs many people thought that many times i mean you know probably the craziest thing we did well the Maniac Wedding was the topper of all. Um, you know, when we had an actual wedding that ESPN covered for 13 and a half minutes uh, with Mrs. Maniac and Sebastian was the uh, best man. And we had Frida, the flamingo. We called her Frida that night. This big flamingo uh, was the uh, maid of honor. And, you know, we did this whole routine on the field and ESPN covered it because we told them it was only going to take three or four minutes and it, it went on forever. But the other thing uh, I did that I'm lucky I, I might still be alive is for the Olympics in 88, each night I was doing, the Maniac was doing a, a, a different Olympic event. And so for Sunday night ESPN televised, nationally televised baseball game against Texas, the Maniac was going to ski jump off the top of the dugout. And we practiced it five or six times during the day. And every time I landed right on my tailbone, to this day, it hurts when I sit in an airplane more than two or three hours. So sure enough, the lights come on, you know, cameras are rolling, and the maniac just does a perfect, beautiful, perfect ski jump off the plywood that we'd erected, and then immediately crashed and rolled over and fell on the ground. But, you know, for that one second, that was perfect. And the place went just crazy. And that was when Eddie the Eagle was real popular in the Olympics, the, uh, the British ski, uh, ski jumper. And so the crowd's chanting, Eddie, Eddie, you know, and then once that happened, then maniac, maniac. And so, I mean, some of those things, people are just like, why in the world did you do that? I wondered many times, you know, afterwards, I had more injuries back then than some of the football or baseball players. Vinny Scavo, the head trainer, you know, he was, he was the baseball trainer back in the 80s. And he had a file bigger on me than anybody else because of just crazy things I'd do, diving off of the fences or running a, a, a scooter right into the outfield wall. I mean, we just, all kinds of crazy stuff. I think you, you've said it, you know, you put on the costume and it just gives you a confidence and in, in a bravado being somewhat veiled, even though that's part of the job, 
that allows you to push limits. Right. I mean, you just do things that you probably couldn't do out of the costume. And a lot of it too, you know, it, there's, there's, there's a good and a bad of it. I mean, you could get yourself hurt by doing crazy things. I mean, I've had six knee surgeries over my career, many broken fingers, probably a few concussions that I didn't know about, but the costume. And again, I, we always tried to do good, clean, G-rated family entertainment, but it allowed you a little certain leeway. You know, like I say, you, you can kind of go to that line a little bit, but it's the character and people realize that it's the character that's doing that, you know, and, and there were some, I mean, some really some crazy things that, that, you know, and fun things that happen with fans and, you know, the best, the maniac loved the kids. The kids would follow the maniac. He was like a pie piper. And, you know, so he would do things, take the kids out on the field, uh, you know, in between innings and have them throw the ball in the, the food fling. There was a contest called the food fling and just having a kid out there, the crowd just loved it. You know, the maniac would, would do these little skits with the kids. And um, it was such a fun time to be in a character, to, but the teams were winning. So the crowds were coming out. Like I say, you kind of got away with a little bit more uh, by, by the success of the team and the fact that people just wanted to be at the ballpark, particularly at Mark Light Field. I mean, it was just, it, there was no place better to be. And still isn't. You said uh, the spell out, the Kane spell out started with baseball. How long, how long did it take to take at baseball? I would, I would guess it took two or three years to, to pit, really get it going. I, th I think I kind of started at around the 85, 86 years because I don't remember doing it, you know, the first year or two that I was here, which was 83, 84. Uh, so it took a couple of years. Th there was a group that th – this was another thing about Sebastian and uh, the difference between Sebastian and the Maniac. You know, Sebastian had this huge crowd, but the crowd – was able to to watch Sebastian and realize it was the same person, you know, game after game, year after year, uh, because of my reaction. The Maniac was a lot more intimate. They got to know the Maniac on a personal level. You know, there was a bald-headed guy that would always get his head rubbed. There was a, a woman who sat, you know, three or four rows up who would always want to hug and kiss the Maniac. There was another, you know, person who wanted to high-five, you know, so each person had their own little relationship with the maniac that, you know, grew through the, the 10 years that, that I performed as the maniac. And it was because I was the same person. So I, I, I remember that this, this person did this and that person, you know, wanted a high five and this person wanted a hug. And so there was that, that intimacy that the maniac had with, with the crowd. And there was a group in, in the mid eighties that sat on the third base side. One night I was on the field and uh, I knew one or two of the 10 or 12 people that were in this group. And one of them, you know, the game was boring, not boring, but, you know, slow moving. And there was a pitcher change. And so I just decided to do, you know, I, I, eye contact with them. Let's do charades. And I did, you know, movie, uh, two words. And so I started interacting with them. Well, that, that kind of became a thing with that's the third base side, you know, of, of the maniac was doing, you know, charades with the crowd. So that, that was kind of the difference in the, in the maniac and the Ibis. The maniac was more, people really felt like they knew the maniac and Sebastian was the character on the field, but you knew how he was going to react to certain things. You mentioned Mike Martin from Florida state was good about engaging the maniac. Did, did you ever engage in an opposing team that it did not 
get received so well? Um, most of them were pretty good, particularly when they came down here. Gary Ward from Oklahoma State, when, when I'd go to the College World Series, he told me, just don't even come into my, our, you know, I, I had, if I was changing in the home locker room and they were the home team, I'd have to change on the other side. He was, he was not a, a, a mascot favorite. A couple of the, the older uh, coach, <laughs> it was a great story. I believe it was the 85 regional. You know, they would always send, you know, an Ivy League team down that, that won their conference. And I believe it was Princeton that year. And, and Coach Frazier, you know, Maniac had been out there doing his thing and Jay's playing the music and making announcements. And, you know, there's 5,000 people in the stands. And Coach Frazier loved to tell that story. The, the old coach for, for Princeton comes out, you know, and he's been in baseball for 70 years. And, and he says he walks up to Coach Frazier when they're doing the uh, lineup exchange before the game and says, this ain't baseball. And coach Frazier goes, what? He goes, this ain't college baseball. And Coach Frazier goes, what do you mean? Why is it this college baseball? He goes, you got people in the stands. You're playing that god-awful music, and you got that rodent running over, over there. <laughs> so, you know, that was college baseball for us. We had music. We had people in the stands, and we had that little fuzzy rodent running around over there. And, I mean, a lot of the players would, would years later would say, man, it was a tough place to come to Miami because of J-Road. You know, who would always have, you know, always play the right music to, you know, the hit the road jack when the, the pitcher's coming off or, or, you know, different things like that. The maniac was always there doing, you know, routines and, and, and then the crowd was just, you know, we always had a great crowd. So it was always a, a, a great place to watch a baseball game. Why was the maniacs number one half? When I first got here, it just said, uh, uh, well, the, the front said you Miami and had Miami Maniac on the back. And we said, let's get a number. And I said, well, I want to be a maniac and a half. In other words, not just one maniac, it's a maniac and a half. So that was my theory <laughs> when, when we started the one half. And plus, you know, you can't have number one and number three retired and number eight. And, you know, all, all, the, all the good numbers are already retired. So he's a maniac and a half. Was it hard to leave? Yes, it was. Uh, but, you know, I thought it, I, I figured it was time. Um, the, the Marlins, you know, like I say, again, talking about wanting to, you know, to, to move on in your career, I wanted to make it to the majors. Um, mm -hmm. And while I enjoyed the 10 years I was at the University of Miami, uh, you know, this was something else that another step, stepping stone. Um, it, it was, you know, of course, Coach Frazier had left the year before. Uh, you know, 92 was his last year. So I actually worked through the, the spring of 93, even though I was doing Marlins games already, I, I didn't want to leave, you know, coach Kelly had the one year between, uh, coach Frazier and coach Morris and I'd known Brad and I didn't want to, you know, just leave, you know, him coming in and cause it, everybody knew there was going to be changes anywhere with coach Frazier leaving. So, um, I worked through the, through the, um, the, the baseball season in, in May of 93. But it was, you know, it was it was the big leagues. I, I wanted to try it, and uh, I don't regret it. It was it was a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, yeah, there are times where I wish, you know, that I could have stayed here. But um, you know, it was it was something to. Uh, I, I enjoyed the, being with the Marlins as well. So, it, the Marlins were, you know, another set of circumstances. It was more of a business. Excuse me. You know, you had to 
to get, to make certain appearances for the corporate uh, uh, people and and all that. But it still was fun. The games were fun and getting to know some of the players and uh, and and again getting out in the public and uh, was was good. And, uh, but yeah, I, I certainly miss the uh, the old Mark Light days. It's come full circle. You are the uh, executive director of the UM Sports Hall of Fame. So how did that come to be? I guess you could never leave the U. <laughs> um, after I left Marlins after the 02 season, I started volunteering here for a couple of years. And uh, in 09, the, uh, the Hall of Fame committee came to me after I'd been made an official member of the, of the board. And they wanted to, uh, to we, we had never had a, a director and we never had really a curator. For folks that don't know, the Hall of Fame was, was founded in 66. And it's set up as a 501c3 nonprofit. So it really runs itself. Uh, although obviously everything we do benefits the University of Miami. And we have a great relationship with the athletic department. Uh, you know, our building is right here next to the, the Heck Center. And, but they needed someone to really kind of take charge. Uh, we'd only just simply had a, a receptionist to open the door a few hours a, uh, a day. And the, the committee met, you know, once a month. Because at that time, 12 years ago, all we had was the golf tournament once a year and the banquet once a year. So we have since expanded to a bowling tournament and a fishing tournament. Uh, we did a golf ball drop uh, this year. You know, we've got different events now that uh, raise money for the Hall of Fame. So we're, we're a nonprofit organization. So, you know, if people want to help us out, we, we're always looking for donations, both monetarily and also memorabilia. A lot of people donate uh memorabilia to us that you know have, have they've collected over the years and and things that we can either uh, sell ourselves or uh we, we do have on our website which is umsportshalloffame.com we have a link to a website where we sell memorabilia there's also a gofundme page people can help out that way but the building itself is a, an amazing collection of literally 95 years of uh, the university of miami athletic park we've got a game program from the very first year we've got the first football kickoff uh, in 1927. We've got uh, a pennant that was on the wall of a student in 1926. And then we've got things all the way up to Duke Johnson's uniform that he broke the rushing record and Brad Kaya's uniform that he broke the passing record. But it, it's not just football. It's uh, we cover all, all the University of Miami sports. And, you know, hopefully once the pandemic is over and things open up again, we'll, we'll be able to open the hall again. But it's, it's an amazing uh, place to be. And you know, I, I love coming here as often as I can to uh, just look at the things and, you know, hope, hopefully, like I say, one of these days we'll be able to open up and, and, and have more folks come in. So how do you get the stuff? Well, uh, this building actually opened in 19, the Tom Kern Sports Hall of Fame building. Uh, Mr. Kearns played football here back in the 40s, and he had a construction company and put up most of the money and, and did most of the construction of the building. It opened in 1989, and so there was a committee that was collecting memorabilia from the members at, at that time. And so over the years, we've just continued to collect uh, memorabilia. Like I said, when it, we, with the Duke Johnson uh, uniform, you know, I knew he was about to break the record. So I went to the equipment guys and said, you know, would you ask Duke if we could have, you know, something. And Duke gave us, loaned us the uh, jersey, the shoulder pads and the shoes that, that he wore that and the helmet. So, you know, those kind of things are, we're always constantly trying to add new pieces to it. You know, and, and like I say, with, with memorabilia, someone, you know, has stuff that, uh, you know, they're, they're downsizing their apartment and don't know what to do with it. You know, we, we get people who donate things all the time. So we're always, you know, trying to, because we are the history. We, we keep the history of the athletic department. 
you never know. Somebody may have something in, in a closet or, a, a, you know, a, even an old program, an old ticket from a game in 1947, you know, something like that, that uh, will add to the, to the archives here so that we can uh, keep the, keep the history. And then last thing uh, you said, you put on the banquet. So maybe, cause we've had this conversation before, walk me through nominating inductions, et cetera. Well, anyone can nominate someone. Uh, we have what we call a long list, which is you know names that have been nominated in the past. Uh, if anyone wants to nominate a, an athlete, best way is to write a letter, send an email with their name, but also uh, some statistics. Uh, you know, help help us a little bit get started with that um, of, of why you think that person is worthy of of Hall of Fame nomination. We have a committee that meets over the summer. Uh, that, that starts uh, doing, and it's a committee that's made up of, of mostly uh, Hall of Fame members and then other uh, members of our committee. Uh, but so they take that long list and the other names that have been submitted during the year, they whittle it down to, you know, 25 or 30 names. And then from there, the research is done, over, you know, further over the summer, and then they meet before the end of the summer and vote on, usually it's been, been eight, seven or eight, uh, people per year, but uh, we do have, you know, an amazing amount of athletes that still haven't been uh, inducted. And so we're, you know, we're trying to catch up as much as we can, but as I say, we're all sports. So, you know, we, we have was 17, 18 sports now that the university has men's and women's. So, you know, we, we have to cover a lot and it's kind of hard to get, you know, seven or eight people out of 18 sports. A lot of people say, well, why isn't so-and-so in? And I say, well, Hopefully he doesn't uh, get the Knoppenberg treatment. John Knoppenberg graduated in 1939 and was inducted in 2001. He had to wait 62 years. So we try to get him in as, as, as quickly as we can. But uh, ju just so other pe people know, uh, an athlete must be out 10 years before they become eligible. So, you know, from, the, from their last uh, athletic competition, they're not eligible for 10 years. So that kind of, you know, like someone who just graduated three or four years ago will still have to wait, you know, before they're even eligible. But we try to do the best we can to get it, get everybody in here, and you know, because we we want to celebrate uh, their history and their accomplishments. But yeah, we, we the banquet unfortunately for the class of 2020 was announced, uh, and so we had to postpone their banquet. We're still working on things, hoping that maybe we could do something uh, in late summer, early fall of this year. Uh, we we were able last February to do our, our uh, bowling tournament, but the 2021 bowling tournament has been pushed back. We're hoping to possibly do something in mid to late August. Our golf tournament, we're, we're hoping to do in October. And the fishing tournament, we're still working on that. We hope that that's, we can make an announcement, you know, in a few weeks that maybe we'll be able to do something in June or July. So um, those, are, those are the four main events that the Hall of Fame has done the last few years. And uh, help us raise raise funds for the Hall of Fame. So, uh, but as I said, we you know we're always accepting uh, donations. If anyone wants to go to umsportshalloffame.com, that's the place to go to to find out where to donate. And I will say this: I, I mean, I've been through there a few times, and it's uh, there's things things probably you expect to see, things you've never thought you see, and just kind of take a, a stroll down memory lane, and it kind of harkens back memories. If you're a fan growing up in Miami alumni, et cetera. There's a lot of, there's a lot of great stuff in there and it's presented very well. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it is pretty cool. And yeah, people come in and they go, wow, I didn't know Jim Otto went here or 
You know, I didn't know uh, Greg Luganus, the greatest diver of all time, is a Miami Hurricane. You know, people, uh, it really is a, a walk down memory lane. You're right. It's, it, it's, uh, I, we could use another 10,000 square feet. Maybe uh, someday that'll happen. All right, John. Well, listen, this has been awesome. A lot of great stories. Thank you. Thank you. It was nice to be remembered for some crazy stuff I did 40 years ago. No problem. My pleasure. That's what we're all about. Good stories here. So uh, I'm glad I'm glad you were able to entertain us and I'm glad you were only detained and you were not arrested as we come full circle. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. I appreciate it.